Chapter Two, Part B: Women of America by John Rose Laris. The Sleepervox recording is in the public domain. The beautiful maidens presented to the Spaniards. Illustration reproduced from Lienzo de las Calan. Munoz Carmargo relates how their Tlascan allies presented the Spaniards a large number of beautiful maidens. This native representation of the scene shows Cortez seated with his followers behind him, and at his side Marina, a young native woman who was his companion and interpreter. The Lienzo de Tlaxca was a long strip of canvas containing 48 representations of scenes of the early Spanish invasions. The original was destroyed during the revolution following the downfall of Maximilian, but a copy had fortunately been made before the destruction. Shortly before the marriage of Dona Marina, Cortez's legal wife, a woman of low birth and a drag upon him in his upward career, had come over from the islands to New Spain, but she did not live long after her arrival and her death furnished the latter detractors of Cortez with a pretext to attack him in the way that could most deeply and yet safely pierce his defense. This was absurd enough, since Cortez had always treated his wife with affection and consideration, but suspicion was never entirely allayed. The facts of having thus influenced, in some degree, the fortunes of the conqueror and of having been one of the first ladies of Spain to die on the shores of New Spain, form the only title to mention in this history of Dona Catalina Juarez. There are indeed but few names of women associated with the conquest of Mexico, that of Marina standing out preeminent. Yet there were women, not a few of who exercised certain influence on the fortunes of the conqueror, and his army, though their names are generally unknown to us. In the second march upon the Mexican capital, many of the soldiers had brought their wives with them, and during the stress and storm of the days when Watimozin was hurling his forces again and again upon the fearfully outnumbered but better armed Spaniards, these women did service in true Amazon style. Not only did they cheer and encourage the downhearted and prick the cowards, though there were very few of the latter in that little army, with the needle of their scorn, but they actually did soldier service as well. When Cortez had besought these women to remain at Glasgow, they had replied that it was the duty of Castilian wives not to abandon their husbands in danger, but to share it with them, and if necessary, to die with them. Though some of the names of these heroines have been embalmed in history by Herrera, they have but little meaning for us now. It is more to the point to know that one and all acted to the utmost of their conception of duty, and that some of them mounted guard on the walls in the place of their husbands, while one was said actually to have donned mail at the time of disaster, and rallied the retreating troops against the enemy. It cannot be said, however, that even these gallant dames showed a higher spirit 
than did the native women during the same time of battle. The Aztecs were suffering from many evils during the conflict when the Spaniards strove, for long in vain, to take from them their beautiful city. The plague of smallpox was abroad, brought to the Aztecs by a dying negro in the train of Cortez, and that unknown negro proved the most terrible foe of the Aztec nation. Yet even though they were now dying by hundreds in the streets, while their thinning ranks were being swept by the fire-speaking tubes that weaponed the army of their foes, they fought fiercely on, and their women gave them noble aid and incitement. They stood by the side of the warrior in battle, strung his bow, filled his quiver, gave him fresh stones for his sling. They nursed the sick throughout all the horrors of the loathsome disease which had fastened upon them. And they did yet more, for they kept their hearts high with hope and determination when even the noblest warriors failed of these things, and so they upheld the hands of Watimozin, their beloved but most unhappy chief, and upbore the standard of their country to the very end. It was all in vain. The Mexico of that civilization was doomed, but none the less did the women of that day, both pagan and Christian, display qualities which, in the fusion of the races in after years, should have borne noble fruit. It is not the purpose of this work to trace the history of any country, save at the points where such history touches the universal story of woman, and so there exists no obligation to present to the reader even the most fragmentary sketch of the progress of Mexico from the rule of barbarism of the Aztecs to that of the civilization of the Spaniards. The latter brought with them their own feminine culture, and for long held it apart from the conditions existing among the indigenous inhabitants of the land. Among the women of Spain who took up their abode in Mexico, there are names which lend themselves to story, but their histories touched Mexico only as a scenic background, and moreover it would be an unfruitful digression to attempt to find any feminine history in the days of Spain's first occupation of Anahuac. The viceroys held their courts with little less than regal splendor, and it cannot be that those courts were unadorned by the presence of women of high claim to remembrance. Yet there comes down to us no name of those days touched with the halo of romance or in any way made worthy of memoir. Doubtless the ladies of the vice-regal courts flaunted as costly attire and held themselves as haughtily as their sisters in the court of Spain itself, but they passed away and left no trace, even as an influence. For years of varying fortunes, but of constant prosperity in high places, Spain held Mexico under dominance, until the oppression of the lower classes began to bear its invariable fruit, and there came first threats and then acts of rebellion. There was revolution after revolution, but although the unsuccessful revolts bequeathed to history the names of such men as Hidalgo and Morales, and the successful attempt to throw off the galling yoke of Spain, the names of Iturbide and Santa Ana, there comes down to us, even from these latter times, 
the name of not one woman of renown. Moreover, there is but little in the way of development and change which is found for record. Long before the expulsion of the Spaniard, the Mexican people had come to be recognized as a nation, not merely of descendants of the Spaniards, but of a people of self-gained characteristics. Mexico was no longer New Spain. She was herself, even as, a few years before, a greater country on her borders had come to be itself in the matter of nationality, even before it had gained autonomy. To be a Mexican woman was not merely to be a lesser Spaniard, but to be something definite, something individual. Some of the older national traits had become developed, some atrophied, but long before Mexico had achieved her independence, the Mexican woman had attained her own freedom from Spanish dominance in matters of custom, thought, and even heredity. Yet it cannot be said that there was progress. There was fixed development of nationality as displayed in the establishment of a characteristic femininity, but there was no evolution toward a higher type of individual or of civilization that had been known in the days of the coming of the Spaniards. On the contrary, there may be said to have been retrogression. The woman of Mexico, by which name we must now distinguish the descendants of the Spaniards, while those of Aztec blood or descendants from any of the native tribes may be called generically Indians, retained as a rule neither the activity and courage of the wives of the conquistadors, nor the graces and dignity of the dames of the vice-regal courts. After the establishment of Mexican independence, there came as first ambassador from Spain, in 1839, Señor Don Calderón de la Barca, and this gentleman brought with him his very accomplished wife, Madame Calderón, as is the case with most women, was an indefatigable letter-writer, especially when she was amid new conditions, and to a number of her letters, written with no intent of publication, but most vivid and entertaining in their presentation of the chief characteristics of Mexican social life, is owing much of the present-day knowledge of Mexican existence in the early part of the 19th century when that existence had begun to be acknowledged as national and individual. There is no period better adapted than this to the purpose of finding and fixing a typical Mexican woman, for it was the time when the women of Anahuac had emerged from the imitation of Spanish characteristics and customs into a national female existence as well as type, and it was before their briefly held individuality failed beneath the incursions of a northern civilization, which had been so universally destructive of national type wherever it has set foot. Consideration of the characteristics of the Mexican women of the forties may be begun with an extract from the letters of Madame Calderon. She is speaking of society women in Mexico, and she says, I must put aside exceptions which are always rising up before me, and write en masse. Generally speaking, the Mexican senoras and senoritas 
write, read, and play a little, sew, and take care of their houses and children. When I say they read, I mean they know how to read. When I say they write, I do not mean that they can always spell. And when I say they play, I do not assert that they have a general knowledge of music. The climate inclines everyone to indolence, both physical and moral. One cannot pore over a book when the blue sky is constantly smiling in at the open windows. This language reads as the words of one who is reluctantly compelled to tell the whole truth and then seeks to withdraw, or at least palliate, the accusation which she has brought. It is entirely plain that at the time of Madame Calderon, ignorance and sloth were the prevailing feminine characteristics among those who sat in high places. It is true that the chronicler goes on to say that the Mexican women generally made good wives and affectionate mothers. But even in this matter she does not strike us as speaking with conviction. However, this may be, she is certainly at no loss to characterize the taste in dress displayed by the fine ladies upon festal occasions. Describing one of these, she writes, Here was to be seen a group of ladies, some with black gowns and mantillas, others, now that their church-going duty was over, equipped in velvet or satin, with their hair dressed, and beautiful hair they have, some leading their children by the hand, dressed, alas, how they were dressed, long velvet gowns trimmed with blonde, diamond earrings, high French caps furbelowed with lace and flowers, or turbans with plumes of feathers. Now and then the head of a little thing that could hardly waddle alone might have belonged to an English dowager duchess in her opera box. Some had extraordinary bonnets, and as they toddled along, top-heavy, one would have thought they were little old women, without a glimpse caught of their lovely little brown faces and blue eyes. Though again Madame Calderon very kindly bestows her criticism upon the dresses of the children rather than those of the mothers, even a mere man can guess what must have been the appearance of the mothers who had chosen thus to dress their offspring. It is not, however, among the higher classes of city-dwellers that one should seek for the most characteristic aspects of the life of a nation. These city-dwellers, and especially the female moiety of them, are apt to be mere imitators of other cultures, shaping their lives, as their costumes, in obedience to the dictates of some other land higher in the scale of fashion. It is to the country that terrace, as distinguished from the herbis, that one must go to obtain the truth of female life in Mexico or any other land, for, though fashion may hold sway here also, it is less apt to overcome national taste and custom. Female life on the great estates of Mexico, the haciendas, in the first days of the Republic, was a measure characteristic and individual, more so at least than at any time since the days of the first coming of the Spaniards. To some extent there was a continuance of the customs of the race which had dealt in Anahuac before the coming of the invaders, the customs being modified by the conditions and needs of the new time. 
among the upper classes there was no costume peculiar to the country save that nearly all wore the graceful veil in lieu of the hideous european headdresses of the period there was however then as now a decided love for garishness of colour among the mexican women and there was but little display of taste in the direction of costume the mistress of a large hacienda was somewhat in the position of one of the european ladies of the castle in feudal days but as a rule though of course the stated rules had many exceptions she did not occupy herself in the same manner as did the feudal chatelaine she was apt to be ignorant and lazy she passed the greater part of the day in idling upon the asota as was called the roofed garden which crowned most of the long and low houses of the mexican country estates perhaps rolling and smoking her cigarettes for mexican ladies were inveterate smokers or perhaps writing a papilio to be sent to her lover in appointment of a tryst this latter if she were young and handsome if she were old and no daughter of anuak passed the rubicon of forty and retained her beauty in even the most modified form she might reflect on her sins which probably gave her some little uneasiness or she might rehearse them into the ears of her confessor or she might do aught that called for no exertion of mind or body of the latter she would never be guilty and of the former she abhorred to an almost equal extent there were however marked exceptions to the rule of inactivity of body in the persons of certain senoritas who could ride like comanches and throw a lasso almost as well as their lovers and brothers who delighted in the display of these their chief and perhaps only accomplishments these ladies however were in the minority the rule of mexican female life was passivity not to say sloth as in the case of their predecessors so with the women of modern mexico consideration has been accorded chiefly to those of the upper class there was however until recently a very large and significant class in mexico called peons who might be said roughly to answer to the servitors of european feudal times this class was composed chiefly or entirely of those of native indian blood the descendants of the races enslaved by the spaniards and set free so late in the history of mexico as even now hardly to have lost in all respects the characteristics of slavery these peons form the servitor class on the great haciendas and are almost retainers of the wealthy proprietors their women are of wildly different type from the senoras who form the bulk of the upper classes and the same difference which exists to-day was even more determined in the days of the youth of the mexican republic so constant indeed have been the individualities of this people that it matters little whether we look at them in the past or in the present as is generally the case with classes which represent the lower strata of the population and are from their very unimportance in the social scale less affected by outer influences and therefore more steadfast to national type the peon class has altered little 
in its peculiar customs and characteristics these being modified only as is rendered necessary to meet the changes in material conditions which have from time to time occurred in this peon class are encountered many recurrent and persistent customs of the aztec civilization but as these instances do not strongly affect the life of the women they may be passed over that which it is needful to note however is the fact that always in the history of feminine mexico it is the women of truly native stock who have formed the characteristically native class it is they who have had and held a settled and constant tradition and custom it is they who have conserved an individuality which has come down to them from mingled cultures from that of the aztecs with their paradoxical civilization and nature and that of the spanish intruders with their latin characteristics modified by new environment the mingling of these cultures produced the true mexican individuality yet though individuality was at the time of the foundation of the republic to be found most decisive in the peon class it may be broadly said that at that period the mexican woman was generally characteristic and individual she reproduced and accentuated many spanish traits she was gay beneath the mask of propriety immoral the rule of generalities must be remembered under the cloak of a profound piety vengeful and jealous under the garb of a real love and in all ways was the emphasis of the spanish woman of her time she was more than that however she had her national and even racial traditions and characteristics which parted from the castilian culture at certain points and turned to the old fount of the aztec racial influence she was more profoundly superstitious than her spanish sister and she was more concerned with outer guise in all matters of morality or religion she would not for the world miss her accustomed attendance at mass but she did not fail to recognize the opportunities offered by the ceremonial with its genuflections and its periods of rest for the transmittal of notes of amorous inspiration and many was the billet d'amour which was slipped by a tiny hand into a broader palm as the respective owners thereof bowed in apparently deep reverence at the elevation of the host among the higher classes the mexican senora and senorita were far less educated and cultivated than their spanish kindred yet among the lower classes not the peons but the shopkeeper class in the cities the small landholders in the country education of a kind was further advanced in mexico than in spain most interesting in certain ways though least individual of all was this middle class wearing as their festal costume white embroidered gowns with white satin shoes and neat feet and ankles rebozos or bright shawls thrown over their heads while the peasants on the same occasions were dressed in short petticoats of two colors generally scarlet and yellow with thin satin shoes and lace-trimmed chemise stockings it may be noticed are not referred to in either case 
Sixty years ago they were not considered at all de rigueur in the costumes of the Mexican woman of any but the very highest class, and if we are to believe all travellers, not even invariably among the senoritas themselves. The Mexican woman of the dawn of the Republic was a type, indefinite, even elusive, amid the crowd of southern Latin nationalities yet possessing some distinctive traits of manner, custom, and nature, and by those to be distinguished from her Italian, Spanish, or even South American kinswomen. But the individuality which she possessed, never strongly marked, soon began to fade before the incursion of a northern culture, with its novel ideas, standards, and requisites. When the United States was at war with Mexico, the type of the latter culture was at its most distinctive stage, and though there were not a few of the women who were enamored of the methods of the northern invaders and became avanquedos as sympathizers with the foe were contemptuously termed, yet as a rule the women of Mexico proved true daughters of Anahuac in their hatred of the enemy of their native land. But these passions passed away with the coming of peace and the Maximilian episode served to bring Mexico into somewhat closer relation with the civilization of her northern border neighbor. Still the national culture, if so it can be called, remained practically unaffected for years after the founding of the Republic, for the purely Spanish families had been banished in large numbers, and the Maximilian rule was too brief to effect a new Latin invasion. But there was an invasion lowering upon the horizon of Mexico, the foreseen perhaps by few, which was destined to prove most effectual in influencing the future of the Mexican woman, the invasion of the Anglo-American in peaceful guise, armed with scrip and not with stave, and bearing the axe and spade in his hands. The wealth of Mexico began to attract the attention of the citizens of her northern neighbor, and they kindly hastened to relieve her of as much as she found it all burdensome, and they themselves decided the discomfort of that burden. The typical American, the American par excellence, he of the United States, invaded Mexico once more, though this time in search of dollars, not glory, and under his influence, perhaps yet more under that of his wife and daughters, the feminine civilization of Mexico lost its individuality in its acceptance of the standards which were unfitted to its conditions and unacceptable to its traditions. The women of Mexico forgot her history and her very nature, and became, in the majority of cases, a mere imitator of Anglo-Saxon and Gallic fashion and custom. Once she smoked her dainty cigarette with entire nonchalance. Now, even though her English and North American sisters have found a charm in the nicotine, incense that is offered to the god of social converse, your Mexican woman, having long since been told solemnly that Los Americanos do not smoke, has thrown away her little roll of paper and tobacco, and has become proper, according to the standards, with which she should have nothing in common. She has doffed her rebozo, 
that which might have been termed the national garment of the mexican woman and has accepted the less graceful and becoming garments of european fashion in all outer guise she is steadfastly setting herself to become a mere imitation if not a caricature of the bells of other civilizations but within she is still the child of the south the daughter of a race of indians dashed indeed with spanish blood but preserving many of the indian characteristics intact and these do not agree with normal culture for it must be remembered that in mexico there is to-day owing to the wholesale expulsion of the spaniards at the establishment of independence hardly a family of unmixed blood and those who do claim uncontaminated descent from the spanish hidalgos are looked upon with utmost disfavor almost ostracized indeed on the other hand the mexicans have come to look upon americans of the north with respect and even affection and to welcome them to their country and often to their homes the result of course has been partly to establish a heterogeneous culture neither spanish indian nor american and yet a commingling of all three at least in outward form but beneath the veneer of the new culture of the mexican woman preserves the characteristics which have been hers for centuries and which in their greater part came down to her from her indian forebears she is still passionate jealous vengeful sudden and violent in all her impulses most of which are founded upon that which she calls her love but which as a rule is but passion her traditions do not agree with her surroundings as she would fain make them and the question as to which will finally survive in permanent conquest is one that can be answered by time alone that convenient arbitrator to which to refer all vexed questions of this sort to that tribunal may be left the questions for the future which have been suggested to thoughtful readers concerning the mexican woman End of chapter 2, part B.